I voted for Dwight Eisenhower the first time I ever voted. I voted for Nixon the last time. But when we come to Senator Goldwater, now it seems to me we're up against a, a very different kind of a man. This man scares me. Now maybe I'm wrong. A friend of mine has said to me, listen, just because uh, a man sounds a little irresponsible during a campaign doesn't mean he's going to act irresponsibly. You know that theory that the White House makes the man. I don't buy that. You know what I think makes a president? I mean, aside from his, his judgment, his experience, are the men behind him, his, 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 uh, his advisors, the cabinet. And so many men with strange ideas are, are working for Goldwater. I asked to speak to you because I'm mad. I've known Barry Goldwater for a long time. When I hear people say he's impulsive and such nonsense, I boil over. Hello and welcome to Raise the Dead, the only podcast that digs up America's political history before it can strike again. On this, the second episode of our three-part series into the 1964 election, we focus on Barry Goldwater, a man whose ideology of fiscal conservatism has outlived his political career. And in this moment in time, he's about to rip power from the Republican Party while all the party elders plot to sabotage him. The tale of an ethnically Jewish populist who would not bend in his fight to reshape a party. Hey, that sounds familiar in 2020. So join me, won't you? Let's get a real leader and not a power politician in the White House. Vote for Barry Goldwater. History is written by the winners, it's said, and politics is no different. Often, the difference between winning and losing is about making that one decision at the exact right time. And more often than not, those decisions require sacrifice. Well, we call it sacrifice because they're the winners, you know. It did hurt for them. Another term might be moral flexibility. If we're being cynical, maybe even hypocrisy. But the end justifies the means. After all, the cause is what matters. I warn you, friends, this is not an episode where I make one of those men a hero. No. This episode is about the true believers. The men who saw moral clarity in the causes themselves and saw victory in never compromising. They did not change for the crowd. The crowd showed up for them as is and then were led forward because they believed too. Men that saw the promised land on the horizon and when they were invariably slain by the shapeshifters, their true worth shone 
in the inspiration their believers carried forward. Are you ready for a political revolution? I am convinced that in this year of 1964, we must face up to our conscience and make a definite choice. We must decide what sort of people we are and what sort of a world we want. Politics is risk averse, so iconoclasts are very rare. This is a story about two of them. And two that you would rarely think in the same vein since they are so very apart ideologically. Bernie Sanders is a democratic socialist, a man who wants to use the near unlimited power of the nation to make the lives of the average citizen worth living. Barry Goldwater sought to get the government off the back of America's working class so it might soar higher. The methods are polar opposite, but their audience was largely the same. Average people who felt they weren't getting the American dream that was promised them. Now, in case you haven't noticed, the political and economic establishment of this country, they're getting very nervous about our campaign. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. History is written by the winners, though, and Bernie or Barry win in the end of this episode. For all their similarities, they also shared very similar enemies. The gates of power were closed to them. The in-crowd believed them to be unserious sideshows, rabble-rousers, out of the mainstream, extreme. This episode is not only about the campaigns of Barry Goldwater in 1964 and Bernie Sanders in 2020. This is about how the men in power sought to kill those campaigns and how they succeeded. This is that story, as real today as it was in 1964. My name is Justin Robert Young. News dies and becomes history, but tonight, we raise the dead. We're in Columbia, South Carolina. The crowd is right now waiting for Joe Biden to get on stage and do something he has never done before in his political career. Give a primary state victory speech. Thank you, thank you, thank you, South Carolina! Joe Biden was first elected to the Senate in 1972 by the people of Delaware. Before 2020, he ran for president twice, once in 1988, once in 2008. Both ended in memorable disasters. 88 was a plagiarism scandal and 08 was punctuated by a few racial gaffes. Either way, he had never won a primary state victory. Of course, from 2008 until where we are right now in 2020, he'd spent two terms in the White House as Barack Obama's vice president and now 
he's running again. After a very, very, very rough start to the 2020 primary, the old dog finally did it. He won the state of South Carolina, and it wasn't close. Boy, though, (laughs) that win was necessary for him. Joe's campaign was looking pretty rough leading into the Palmetto State. Joe looked sluggish. He got defensive with people during question and answer sessions and used weird jargon that highlighted his incoherence and age. No, you haven't. You're a lion dog faced pony soldier. You said you were, but you're. you're but you mostly, things didn't look good for Biden because he was losing and losing badly. Fourth place in Iowa, fifth in New Hampshire, second in Nevada, but still got blown out by 20%. This did not look like a powerful vice president with name recognition. This looked like Democratic primary voters rejecting Joe Biden for a third time. But timing is everything. And if Joe Biden didn't look impressive before South Carolina, at least he knew that there was not another moderate candidate that had decisively taken the reins. Mayor Pete Buttigieg had a big moment in Iowa. Amy Klobuchar was the talk of the town in New Hampshire. But as he stands on that Columbia stage, he literally sees the eyes of the media turning back to him. If no one else can supplant him as the centrist option, maybe he's got some moves to make after all. But at this moment, right now, being the top centrist didn't necessarily look like the best position to be in because the early months of 2020 appeared to herald the coming of a new age, the passing of party leadership to Bernie Sanders. In contrast to Biden, it could be argued that Bernie's first real loss of the season was there in South Carolina that Saturday night. I mean, sure, it was a beating. He lost by 29%, but he still placed second and was only 48 hours away from the moment his momentum would be undeniable. Super Tuesday. When massive, delegate-rich states like Texas and California would supercharge Sanders to an insurmountable lead. I mean, it's nice that Joe gets his moment up there. And he can retire knowing that he didn't go over when it came to primary states. But he didn't have the money, he doesn't have the message, and he doesn't have the momentum to play on Super Tuesday. Besides, even if he was a more competent candidate, he's got other centrist candidates that are going to split that vote. Joe can't win those voters by himself. In this moment, Biden's giving his farewell speech, only hours away from succumbing to the biggest repudiation of a party's moderate wing since 1964, when a Republican senator 
hijacked his party from the moderates. And that man's name was... Barry Morris Goldwater, the grand old man of the grand old party. In my anecdotal knowledge of presidential history, and I'm by no means an exhaustive scholar, right? I'm just a guy with a podcast. I don't know if I have ever truly heard a story like the one I'm about to tell you. So to begin our story of how Barry Goldwater conquered the Republican Party while running for president, we begin with Barry Goldwater very much not wanting to run for president. Uh, July of 63, when a group against my wishes and against my authority met here in Washington at the armory and decided to put a team together to get me the nomination. I would not give them my permission, but that didn't stop them. I didn't think they could do it. I didn't think they had a chance. So a a quick word on exploratory committees. It's something that you hear a lot in politics. Usually, this is a pretty performative thing. A politician wants to make a run at a big office, but wants to test the water. Some of his supporters, and likely future staff, form a committee to, quote-unquote, convince him or her. This gives the impression of a grassroots movement, attracts potential fundraising sources, is a trial balloon to the public to see how interested or disinterested they will be in it. It's very kabuki. Sure, every politician says they don't want to run for president. It's only when called upon that they'll respond. But in researching this podcast, I get the sense that Barry meant it. He took repeated meetings and in the interviews with the staff that put together this exploratory committee, they were genuinely afraid he was not going to show up. He wasn't exactly coordinating with them and refused to give them information or schedules. But eventually he listens and he starts to like what he's hearing. The team could put together a very effective campaign and maybe they'd have a shot against the young John F. Kennedy. Goldwater liked JFK, but he did feel like the young president was in a bit over his head. According to one story, Barry knew he had what it took to be president when JFK asked his advice on the Bay of Pigs situation. Jack laid out all the possibilities, but seemed to waffle from one option to the other. Barry knew that there was a worth in picking one course of action and heading toward it 100%. And even if he could bring that to the presidency, it would be a value behind the Resolute desk. Barry also says that He hoped to have a very civil campaign. He wanted to use the same plane as JFK and his staff. He wanted to do joint campaign appearances where they would debate locally across the country. Bring back a old-timey civility 
to presidential politics, which had obviously gotten a little nasty and personal throughout 1960. But whether or not it was ever realistic, you know what they say about best laid plans. JFK is murdered in 1963, and almost immediately, Barry says he doesn't want to run. First, he knows the nation isn't going to want to change parties a year after a popular president is murdered. Second, he did not want to run against Lyndon Baines Johnson. He knew LBJ from the Senate. He knew how brutal he could be in his campaign tactics, and he didn't want to be on the other end of it. Look, he could stomach losing, but getting embarrassed discredited, well, that would hurt what Barry was really after. Eroding the power base of the Republican Party from New York City and remaking it as a populist institution. But now he's really in a pickle because it's probably a once-in-a-lifetime proposition that a bunch of very capable political professionals build a great campaign for you and only ask for you to turn the key. At the same time, he didn't want to take this amazing new car he'd been handed and drive it off a cliff, and that's what a race against LBJ would be. Ultimately, though, there was one crowd that convinced him. So I decided not to run. And then I got so darn much pressure from young people all over the country that around the, the middle of December, I think it was, of 63, I said, well, I'll run. The young people he's talking about are largely young Republicans and children who were raised in families that would begin to view the growing counterculture movement as a sign of national decay. These young people had a Bible. I mean, I guess they had a Bible, but they had another book that they really, really liked. And it's one that only grew more famous from its initial release in 1960. The Conscious of a Conservative by Barry Goldwater. Ghostwritten by L. Brent Bozell Jr. Conservatism is not an economic theory, though it has economic implications. The shoe is precisely on the other foot. It is socialism that subordinates all other considerations to man's material well-being. It is conservatism that puts material things in their proper place, that has a structured view of the human being and of human society, in which economics plays only a subsidiary role. The root difference between the conservatives and the liberals of today is that conservatives take account of the whole man while the liberals tend to look only at the material side of man's nature. Now, I assume for a host of reasons, there's going to be a lot of folks who listen to this that find the comparison either way from Barry Goldwater to Bernie Sanders and reverse to be offensive. And largely they will point to stuff like that. That passage is Barry Goldwater explaining why the policies of Bernie Sanders are bad for the country, and Bernie Sanders can very eloquently explain why Barry Goldwater's are similarly toxic. But take a step back for a second and look at the solutions that they are offering. They say that these are systemic problems, 
They require systemic solutions. This isn't a nip and tuck. This isn't five degrees here, five degrees there. They want the system to change. And here's where they're more alike. The people that stand in the way of that change. Here's Barry Goldwater in his book, Conscience of a Conservative, talking about how members of the moderate Republican Party constantly degrade their own belief system's strengths. Republican candidates, Vice President Nixon has said, should be economic conservatives, but conservatives with a heart. President Eisenhower announced during his first term, I am conservative when it comes to economic problems, but liberal when it comes to human problems. Still other Republican leaders have insisted on calling themselves progressive conservatives. These formulations are tantamount to an admission that conservatism is a narrow, mechanistic economic theory that may work very well as a bookkeeper's guide, but cannot be relied upon as a comprehensive political philosophy. The book and therefore Barry make the following pitch. We are the party of compassion. We are the party of a better way forward. Forget trying to moderate your views. Use this truth to connect to the people. Goldwater is openly critical of members of his own party that want to run away from this label. Politically, if you run away from a label or try to moderate it, then you are inherently highlighting that there are negative connotations toward it instead of highlighting why this philosophy will work for the people. It reminds me quite a bit about how Bernie Sanders has tried to cognitively reframe democratic socialism, showing that this is not everything bad you've ever heard about any socialist experiment, but rather that it can be used for good. Therefore, embrace the label and talk about what you want to do with it. This, of course, terrifies those that really control the party. And so, Goldwater sets his sights on one man who stands in his way, the representative of the party elite in the 1964 primary. And his name is Nelson Rockefeller. Listeners to our last season about 1960 might remember that Goldwater and Rockefeller had fought a proxy war at that year's convention, each of them vying for power with Richard Nixon and the party platform. Barry got so angry about Rockefeller's behind-the-scenes machinations that he briefly fanned the flames of his own nomination. The battle for 1964's nomination would pit them against each other, and both of them set a collision course for the primaries. Following JFK's lead in 1960, they hoped to amass enough delegates to make it very hard for somebody to knock them off the perch come convention time. Not only will their battle be fought for the ideological direction of the Republican Party, it's also going to crash headlong into the societal norms of the mid-60s. It's the clash in California. 
So to fully understand California, you've got to understand Nelson Rockefeller and Happy Murphy. Both of them have lived full lives, spouses, children, legacies. Nelson and his wife knew Happy and her husband because Happy's husband worked for Nelson as a virologist. They moved in the same circles of socialites between New York City and Philadelphia. And yet, Nelson and Happy are miserable. What they really wanted was each other. And yet, their love was not to be. Nelson Rockefeller isn't just some New York City big spender. At this moment, he's the governor of New York and a possible president. He can't just leave his wife and mother of his children for another woman. And obviously, any criticism for Nelson will go double for happy. How could she break up her own family? How would America look upon such a selfish Jezebel? And yet, that's exactly what they did. Both got divorced in 1963 and married each other. New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller and his bride meet the press following a wedding that's kept more people guessing than any since the Duke of Windsor married Wallace Simpson in 1937. This is indeed a very happy occasion and it's my great honor and pleasure to introduce to you someone that some of you have been looking for for quite a while, Mrs. Rockefeller. Well, I'm very happy, but I know you'll understand if I'm slightly overwhelmed at the moment. Okay. <laughs> the new Mrs. Rockefeller, the former Margareta Fittler Murphy of Philadelphia and New York, was divorced last month from a virologist at the Rockefeller Institute. The former Mrs. Rockefeller, also a Philadelphia socialite, was divorced from the governor a year ago. Just what effect the dual divorces and subsequent marriage among close friends will have on the governor's presidential prospects, nobody can tell. But it doesn't seem to bother the happy newlyweds today. Well, it shoulda. <laughs> the backlash to this is swift and loud. George Prescott Bush, father to a future president and grandfather to another, laces into Rockefeller for whom he used to be a supporter. Quote Bush Prime. Have we come to the point where a governor can desert his wife and children and persuade a young woman to abandon her four children and husband? Have we come to the point where one of two great parties will confer its greatest honor on such a one? I venture to hope not. Rocky doesn't care, though. He will not be cowed. He knows the truth. The truth is that his marriage was on the rocks and so was hers. And for a moment, things are kind of looking up. Happy is an unexpected hit with campaign crowds. Contrary to the movie star glam of a Jackie Kennedy, Happy is normal. The press refers to her as having an artless charm. Go ahead and repeat that one to your partner and see if it's a compliment. Even so, it contextualizes the messy divorce drama. Nelson wasn't led astray by a gold digger or a sex pot. 
Happy is kind, relatable. Maybe this is for the best. And it might have been. But unfortunately for Nelson, he sets himself a nine-month time bomb that will test the patience of the electorate he needs the most at the most sensitive time. Happy finds out she's pregnant with their first child together, and the baby will bring with it another wave of subsequent criticism of their union. And that baby happens to be due in the final week of campaigning for the 1964 California primary. So let's get back to that. Nelson is fresh off a very competitive and impressive victory over Goldwater in Oregon. If he beats Barry in the delegate-rich neighbor state of California, that's it for Goldwater. But there's this baby thing. To his credit as a man and a father, Nelson refuses to put his wife's pregnancy in the background. They make no effort to hide it. Nelson goes back and forth between California and New York to be with his pregnant wife. Rocky even jokes about how he's going to have two big deliveries in the same week. Now, up to the final weeks of this campaign, Rockefeller had polled ahead of Barry. But two very specific things happen in the final two weeks. First, that army of young people who convinced Barry to run become a formidable force of door knockers and canvassers. Second, we begin to see the massive power of the California suburban voter, Dawn. Communities throughout the massive state are beginning to sprawl, and the conservative message is reverberating there. These two factors intersect in a few very specific areas. First, quote Theodore White, who's making it the president's books. We've quoted extensively, but here he is as a CBS News analyst. There were 9,500 people out in Los Angeles today. There were 10,000 in the Southland, and they were the neighbors next door. Somebody said it's a question of whether they're going to trust the Los Angeles Times editorial or the woman next door. But let's also put this all together, shall we? Who do you think is going to react the most to the idea of a candidate breaking up two families to marry another woman. Even more scandalous. Press reports about how Happy and Nelson were almost certainly sleeping together before the divorces were official. Old news in New York, new gossip in California. And just in case you forgot about any of it, Happy gives birth to Nelson Rockefeller Jr. on May 31st, 1964. California goes to the polls two days later, on June 2nd. Is that the man that the suburban California housewife can believe in? The philandering New Yorker? 
or do you want to back Goldwater? The Burbs speak. Goldwater, 51%. Rockefeller, 48%. A narrow Golden State victory for Barry. This marks the end of the road for the Rockefellers. But do me a favor. At this point, freeze this moment in time in your head. With Barry now barreling toward the nomination. Looking to be the prohibitive favorite. Because we are going to get to a parallel moment with Bernie in a second. But to truly appreciate what we saw in 2020... You have to understand the lengths that the 1964 Republican Party went to to deny Barry that nomination. The National Governors Conference happens less than a week after the California primary, June 7th in Cleveland, Ohio. In attendance are a few men who would also like to be president. Of course, Nelson Rockefeller had already taken his shot and fallen short. George Romney, father of Mitt, the new governor of Michigan, and William Warren Scranton of Pennsylvania would also like the spot, but see, they had to play coy about it. Their first plan hadn't exactly gone according to Hoyle. They wanted Rockefeller to win in California. If that were the case, he would still would have had to face down the angry Goldwater conservatives at the convention, who would have likely had enough sway to kill a weakened Rockefeller nomination. At that point, you'd need a heretofore unnamed white knight candidate that was acceptable to everyone, Scranton and Romney fit that bill. Unfortunately for them, Barry beat Nelson. So now, if they thought running with a conservative candidate was a disaster, and they did, they'd have to act boldly before the convention. Before this governor's conference is over, both Romney and Scranton will decide that they are going to run for president. But that's where our story ends. It begins with Dwight D. Eisenhower, the former president of the United States, who to this point had remained neutral. But rumors swirled that he was partial to anyone but Goldwater a scion of the conservative faction Ike had beaten back twice during his runs. So it's only days before that governor's meeting when the first domino falls. William Warren Scranton, the governor of Pennsylvania, drives to Gettysburg to have a meeting with Dwight D. Eisenhower. He emerges, allegedly, as Ike's pick for the nomination. Scranton sees the meeting like this. Ike hates Goldwater. Ike loves Scranton. But 
it's Scranton's decision to move on the throne. Leaving Gettysburg, Scranton believes that if he makes the first move, he would have the public backing of the most powerful and admired man in his party. And so, Scranton gets himself booked on the television program Face the Nation, live from Cleveland at the governor's conference. And as the Republican governors arrive, it's very clear that the air is thick with conspiracy. There are only 16 governors and only three of those 16 backed Barry. The first to say what everyone was thinking out loud is George Romney. He explodes during a breakfast meeting about how much of a disaster Goldwater would be. He urges a statement that he wrote be released to the public and all the other governors should back it. It is a mask off moment for a powerful Stop Goldwater movement. Imagine it like this. George Romney is yelling with the other governors on how, if, and when this statement's going to come out. At the same time, Scranton arrives from Pennsylvania. Unaware of the furor kicked up by Romney, he's informed by the hotel staff that Eisenhower has called him and requests a call back. Look at that. The favorite son's getting some shine from dad already. At this point, Scranton is only hours away from going on Face the Nation to announce his candidacy. Oh, I wonder what Ike has to say. Probably just some words of encouragement. He calls Ike back and is told that Ike hopes Scranton didn't misinterpret their chat from the day before. See, the the press is out there saying that Eisenhower is backing a Stop Goldwater movement, and although Ike does think the world of Scranton, the former president will not be part of any such fractious warfare. Scranton's day only gets worse when he arrives at breakfast, which has now broken out into a full-scale fight over Romney's statement. Scranton only stops there for a second and then leaves early to make it to the camera for Face the Nation. So what do you do if you're Scranton? You've got talking points in your pocket announcing that you are throwing yourself into this race, and yet you know the only reason you're doing this is because you had a secret weapon in Eisenhower who literally just called you to tell you that he was off the table. With nowhere to go, Scranton goes nowhere. He squirms on the questions about him jumping into the race. He says he'd accept the nomination, but he will not be fighting for it. What was supposed to be his coming out party is consumed in an awkward pool of flop sweat. Meanwhile, In the same hotel, George Romney is reading his firebrand statement damning Goldwater. Quote, If his views deviate as indicated from the heritage of our party, I will do everything within my power to keep him from being the party's presidential candidate. 
Scranton was humiliated. As Theodore White describes in Making of the President 1964, he felt as if he were a puppet on a string, pushed into the race by Ike, now pulled out by Ike, dancing to a beat not his own. So he channels his anger. Oh, he's gonna lead a Stop Goldwater movement. But since he's embarrassed himself, there's only one man that can be the tip of the spear. George Romney. Now, by the time Scranton makes this realization, Romney's already left Cleveland to go back to Michigan. But he's reached on the phone by Scranton and a few other governors to make it clear to Romney that if he announces, they'll back his play. The final night of the conference is star-studded. Power brokers like Eisenhower, Nixon, and even the villain of the moment, Barry Goldwater, are all in attendance. And all anybody can talk about is who's going to pull the trigger to stop Goldwater. Romney himself returns from Michigan and is immediately met with the planning that the other governors had been doing while he was gone. They offer resources and talent. Rockefeller offered to turn over his entire campaign to Romney. All George has to do is say the word. Even though George had been so fired up when he wrote that statement, things were going a little fast for him. One little note, he had only become a politician two years earlier when he ran for governor of Michigan. So he finds somebody that he can confide in. Somebody that's been around the block. A very smart politician who understood how power worked. He goes to the hotel room of political veteran Richard Nixon. These meetings and Nixon's later comments to the press that the governors were increasingly discussing running one of their own to keep the nomination open leads the press to another conclusion. That this, all of this, Ike meeting Scranton, Scranton going on television, Romney now being at the forefront, all of this was a ploy by Nixon himself. He was angling and manipulating Romney to run just so Goldwater wouldn't have a shot and leave the nomination open to Nixon at the convention. And so, with all that in the air, and most of the main players in the same hotel only two weeks before the national convention in San Francisco, it comes down to this. Will George Romney do it? Romney makes one more trip to Nixon's suite just to get some final 11th hour advice the press is jostling outside of Nixon's door waiting to get the scoop Romney frets to Nixon 
about his pledge to Michiganders when he ran for governor that he would serve out his term and not run for president. He feels strongly that he should honor it, but also recognizes that powerful men in your party drafting you to run doesn't happen all that often. Nixon urges him to conduct a barnstorming campaign, go directly to the people and explain why the values of the Republican Party that you hold so dear are the reason why Goldwater needs to be stopped. George takes it all in, thanks Nixon, and emerges to face the press. He tells them that at the urging of the former vice president and his fellow governors, he is now openly considering a run for the office of the President of the United States. The news rips through the political world like wildfire for five hours and then immediately dies. Romney got cold feet when he hears that the Detroit papers are going to trash him for not serving out his term. Oh, these Romneys. Always kind of doing a thing and then not doing it. Am I right? Nixon, meanwhile, now officially named by Romney as the father of his abandoned insurgent candidacy, also loses all claim to being neutral. He leaves the governor's meeting, flies to London, knowing that any remote chance he had at the nomination in 1964, is now gone. Even Eisenhower can't escape the fallout of this comedically disastrous coup. He maneuvered Scranton into the fray and then embarrassed him when he pulled his support. The press mocks him for his indecision. And going in to the San Francisco Republican National Convention in 1964. The pack of governors who wanted nothing more than to stop Goldwater are no closer to doing it. Barry will get that nomination when the party meets. Moderates in 1964 failed. They saw Barry coming, they couldn't stop him, and they couldn't stop him because they couldn't get on the same page. So how does that relate to 2020? Well, remember when I told you to freeze that moment of Barry Goldwater's victory after California in your head? You know, the moment where Barry had all the momentum and it became clear that everybody in power had to get together to stop him? Well, let's compare that California victory in 1964 to the Nevada caucus in 2020. In Nevada, we have just put together 
a multi-generational, multi-racial coalition, which is going to not only win in Nevada, it's going to sweep this country. Bernie Sanders is a massive winner in the silver state of Nevada. This adds on to his victory in New Hampshire and demonstrates a massive outpouring of young door knocker and canvassers. Sound familiar? Bernie sees a huge turnout from the Hispanic community, which will vote again in large numbers on Super Tuesday, which includes Texas and California. To say the least... The establishment feels the ground shifting beneath it. But uh, I think it's a little late to stop them, and I think that's the problem. By the way, if you look at the pattern, it's dynamic. Uh, Bernie won the popular vote in Iowa. He won, he won it again in New Hampshire. It looks like he's going to win it here when they finally get a vote. Bernie's been winning consistently, and I think it's mathematically understandable. Every time we poll, every time Steve and everybody polls, two-thirds of the Democratic vote, two-thirds of people who call themselves Democrats, are either liberal or very liberal. All Bernie ever had to do, and he's done it beautifully, is get a majority of that, and he's up to the mid-30s. If you get half of 67, you're into the mid-30s, and that's where he's gotten a little better. Biden, his only prayer was to consolidate the third of the vote that's moderate and conservative. And he got nowhere near clearing that field. Nowhere near. That's put up four ways now. Bernie, on the other hand, did his job. He got more than a majority, more than a majority of that 67%. That is the name of the game. It is pretty much over unless that changes. I was reading last night, Brian, I know you're a history guy too. I'm reading last night about the fall of France in the summer of 1940. And the general, Renault, calls up Churchill and says, it's over. And Charles said, how can it be? you got the greatest army in Europe. How can it be over? He said, it's over. Just like Barry, Bernie is running to destroy the center of the party leadership. He wants to make the Democratic Party more populous than it is. Now, he knows he's got a scheduled loss coming up in South Carolina, but Nevada makes it clear. If everyone stays in the race through Super Tuesday, it's going to be very challenging to see a path to the convention with more delegates than Bernie Sanders. That's an understood event. And then... A week and three days later. Biggest night of the political year, and it was certainly a super Tuesday for Joe Biden. No question about that. He rode a fast-breaking wave to score a primary comeback beyond any that has come before. The former vice president swept the South, surprised in the North, put himself back on top of this race. Yeah, take a look at the overall delegate count now. Some See, of now, this is where I think Sanders history helps us. Because our modern media narrative is that Biden came back, that he rallied. And he certainly won. He wins the nomination. But this is not a comeback. Biden didn't get stronger. This is the successful execution of what we saw attempted in 1964. This is not a comeback. This was a Stop Sanders movement. I guess in our modern political language, that seems kind of uncouth. Maybe it robs a little something from Joe Biden, but it's pretty clear when you look at how things went down. 
that speech that Joe Biden gave at the beginning of the episode in South Carolina, that was the beginning of a 48-hour period, not unlike that governor's meeting in 1964. And you can imagine that if things had actually happened at that meeting, the press reports about what was going on would probably sound similar to what we actually heard in 2020. After Joe Biden left South Carolina, he and the other candidates that were in the race went to Selma, Alabama to commemorate the historic walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. It was there that whatever happened between all the moderate candidates came together. And here was the first shoe to drop. Some breaking news into our information center. NBC News reporting that former mayor of South Bend, Pete Buttigieg, is expected to drop out of the race for president. This comes after his meeting today with Pete Buttigieg was a breakout star in this primary. The outgoing mayor of South Bend, Indiana, became a media darling as the first out gay presidential candidate to make serious waves. He also represented youth in a field with some fairly aged competition, including three septuagenarians. His narrow victory in Iowa, followed by an overperformance in New Hampshire, had many, including your narrator, believing that a centrist coalition would most likely form around him in favor of the flagging former Vice President Biden. And yet... Here we are. The day after Joe Biden won his first primary race ever, which put him on the board in terms of delegates behind Pete Buttigieg, Pete quits. Strange. But sometimes in politics, it's better to quit a week early instead of a week late. You know, he can maximize his power within the Biden organization by bolstering Joe before Super Tuesday. It's, it's odd, but understandable. But then, in the same afternoon, only a few hours later... Thanks for watching CBSN Minnesota. I'm Esme Murphy. We have breaking news for you this afternoon. Senator Amy Klobuchar is ending her presidential campaign. We're told from a senior of campaign official that Senator Klobuchar... Now this, this, this right here is, is strange. Not that Amy Klobuchar dropped out. She was very clearly going nowhere. But that she dropped out at that moment. Amy bombed in Iowa. She couldn't win New Hampshire, and she lost all traction in Nevada and was an afterthought in South Carolina. It became very clear to me that she was only staying in this race for one bright spot. Her home state of Minnesota, which voted on Super Tuesday. She was leading in the polls in Minnesota at the time she drops out. Rarely can a primary campaign go out on a high note, but there it was, waiting for Amy. Win Minnesota, call it a campaign, and back whoever you want. All it took was waiting 48 hours. But she didn't. 
she dropped out. Now, maybe this is all coincidental, and maybe Pete and Amy dropped out within 24 hours of the other moderate candidate still in the race, Tom Steyer, just because they all had the same idea. Maybe it was one plane flight too many, but history does not suggest that. History suggests, specifically if you are dealing with moderate candidates that are beholden to the center of party power, that this is that party power defending itself. The why is easy. Let's go back to Chris Matthews' description of the race as Bernie Sanders romped in Nevada. Biden, his only prayer was to consolidate the third of the vote that's moderate and conservative. Within a week and three days of him saying that, it became a reality, but not because Biden pushed them out or not because Biden won the hearts and minds of the voters for Pete and Amy. It's because Pete and Amy and Tom Steyer dropped out. They united into a centrist Voltron hours before Bernie Sanders became unstoppable. All right, so let's say all that's true and and everything that I've laid out is accurate and Pete and Amy and Steyer are their own versions of Rockefeller and Romney and Scranton. And they succeed in killing off the revolutionary campaign of their age where the 1964 Republicans failed. Who directs this? If this story has taught us anything, it's that creating a stop candidate movement is so much easier said than done. It requires tremendous agreement among everyone involved. It means egos need to be set aside. Long-shot dreams need to be quelled. We might never know what combination of promises and arm-twisting brought that moment together. But one thing is pretty clear. Where Ike failed in 64, Obama succeeded in 2020. When faced with an outsider candidate, President Obama knew that he wanted a moderate that would change policy and not, quote, tear down the system, end quote. When his vice president won in South Carolina, he knew it was time to move. Reportedly, he spoke with both Pete and Amy before they dropped out. The powers that be within 48 hours, closed ranks, and succeeded in creating a Stop Bernie movement. There are things that happened after Super Tuesday, but it was over then. If you're trying to create a revolution, you cannot squander chances. Super Tuesday was the chance. For Bernie Sanders. A split moderate vote would have likely meant wins in Massachusetts and Minnesota. Without any other moderates in the field, Biden wins both. Bernie's strength with Hispanic voters meant big margins in Texas and California. 
But without any other moderate candidates, Biden closed the gap in the Golden State and won Texas outright. Factor in a pandemic that happens right after this, and eventually... I wish I could give you better news, but I think you know the truth. And that is that we are now some 300 delegates behind Vice President Biden, and the path toward victory is virtually impossible. So while we are winning the ideological battle, and while we are winning the support of so many young people and working people throughout the country, I have concluded that this battle for the Democratic nomination will not be successful. Bernie drops out. Just like Barry in 64, the hopes of the energetic, youth-led change campaign falls short. Bernie's high point was there in Nevada when everything looked like blue skies. Barry, on the other hand, got one brighter moment in the sun. That was the crowning of him as the Republican nominee. Nothing really went well for him past this moment, but boy, I can imagine that Bernie would have really, really, really loved to have this similar opportunity the chance to stand in front of the party that constantly worked against him, look them all in the eyes, and let them know they lost. And they lost for the right reasons. I got a feeling that Bernie's speech would sound in tone, maybe a little something like this line from Barry. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Moderation is for people that collect and imprison power. Power that pools no matter how you shuffle the deck chairs. Party power is notorious for serving itself. It's why change happens slowly. Bernie believed that and he gave it his best shot. Barry did too. And although he got farther, boy, he got very little help from his party when it came to the general. And we're going to discuss that in the next episode. The crazy part is, is that the party faithful, including every single one of those governors that I named in Cleveland, all cited that line. Extremism in the pursuit of liberty is no vice, and moderation in pursuit of justice is no virtue, as a direct insult. It was the reason they believed Goldwater did not deserve their support. But truth be told, 
for Barry Goldwater and Bernie Sanders, they never wanted the support of the powerful. They wanted to strip them of their power. That was the role of the true believer. And while either of these men got to the White House, their greatest achievement was what those who drew courage from their example went on to do themselves. Barry's conservatism is now mainstream for the Republican Party. In fact, many of the establishment Republicans that are upset with President Trump are upset because he is an aberration from the Goldwater conservatism. What was once the battle cry of rebellion is now being rebelled against. Makes you wonder, what's to happen with the democratic socialist movement? The people don't seem like they're going away. Bernie's 2020 campaign was more powerful than his 2016 one. The mood of the country doesn't seem to be changing in a way that makes the populace appeal less inviting. The question that remains is who picks up the mantle and where it goes from there. the dead is written researched and recorded by me justin robert young it was edited by dog and pony show audio in oakland california original score by carson pace for a list of all the books used for research please go to our website raise the for a compilation of our written transcripts and an audiobook version of this series featuring bonus conversations please head on over to raise the slash complete If you would like my take on modern politics as they happen, please find my podcast, Politics, 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 where all podcasts are found. And finally, you can follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. And now a few things we didn't have a chance to get to during the episode. All right. First things first, there is a crazy story that didn't really fit in here because it doesn't involve our main characters enough about the New Hampshire primary of 1964. Barry Goldwater's there. Nelson Rockefeller's there. Obviously, Nelson is a much bigger name in the Northeast, but New Hampshire is, uh, you know, they got a free spirit. They, They like the underdogs. Barry Goldwater is very bad during this primary. He is crotchety he's not getting along well with his staff he's not messaging well it is just a very 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 bad first day out for him you know not day right but in the opening of this campaign so who wins either of them the man that wins isn't even in the united states he's in vietnam And his name is Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. This guy, Nixon's 
vice presidential nominee in 60. He is currently overseeing a worsening situation in what will eventually be a disaster in Vietnam, but a couple young, lucky Republican operatives decide that they are going to marshal a write-in campaign for Lodge. And in one part, it's just a prank, bro. And another part, kind of revolutionary idea about mass mailing, they wind up sending out flyers to enough people in New Hampshire to direct them to write Lodge in, and Lodge wins! You know, and this actually has an effect because if Barry was not gonna win, if Rockefeller does win, that gives him yet more momentum that might have lessened some of the blow in California. Few quick personal notes about Barry Goldwater. This man is a nerd, He nerd alert. He's a ham radio operator. In fact, that's how he would uh, calm his nerves during the Republican National Convention. While uh, stationed in his hotel room, he would calm his nerves by talking to people on the ham radio. He also had a very cool house. This is like a, this is very weird, but I don't know where I would even put it in. He had a mechanical flagpole that was designed to raise the American flag the second that the sun's rays hit it. This is like in the 60s. I don't even know anybody with that now. It's it's 2020. He also was uh, an, an eccentric uh, when he wanted to separate himself from the world and not get any phone calls and not be bothered by people. He would put on a weighted vest, get into his pool, have a hose that would be sticking out above the water so he'd be able to breathe, and he'd just chill out at the bottom of the pool. That's just what he liked to do. A quick note on the Chris Matthews clip that we played that I think was very telling to, to illustrate where conventional wisdom was at that moment in terms of Bernie Sanders' chances to win in the primary. It also got Chris Matthews fired because he compared Bernie Sanders to the Nazis and he compared, you know, France to the Democratic establishment. Chris Matthews, a couple weeks later, walked off his show in a huff. And really, I, I don't know if we've even seen him since. One last note about the Republican Party. All of the angst that we heard from each and every one of those establishment Republicans was copied and pasted literally into ads by LBJ, including this one, which visually shows feet walking through a disheveled arena with a bunch of confetti on the ground and each time that one of these men that we just talked about are mentioned they are picking up placards with their face on it as if they have been discarded at the republican convention back in july in san francisco the republicans held a convention remember him he was there governor rockefeller before the convention he said barry goldwater's positions can and i quote spell disaster for the party and for the country. Or him, Governor Scranton. The day before the convention, he called Goldwaterism a, quote, 
crazy quilt collection of absurd and dangerous positions. Or this man, Governor Romney. In June, he said Goldwater's nomination would lead to the, quote, suicidal destruction of the Republican Party. So, even if you're a Republican with serious doubts about Barry Goldwater, you're in good company. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. And that was one of the nice ones. Next time on Raise the Dead. 1964 is truly defined by one man and one man alone, and we tell his story. And we do it in his own words. People who want to destroy me. When Lyndon Baines Johnson assumes the office of the presidency, he takes along with him a little trick he used in the Senate. Vicious, mean, dirty, low-down stuff about... Using dictaphones to record phone conversations so he would have a record of what everybody promised him and whether or not they were double-crossing him. LBJ battles the press the Republican Party, and the Kennedy family before unleashing the most devastating and norm-breaking television ad campaign in presidential history on the season finale of Raise the Dead. Dog and Pony Show Audio. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs)